0: Mm. Mm-hmm. you. Fable, pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial
1: topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and we are going to do some book reviews. Um, Today we're just going to do one, and that'll be enough, I think, for you. It definitely is enough for Matt and I, but we're going to review uh, the book by Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise. And, And what we're trying to do is take some of the key pass of books that are out there that are being stated as must read it's like color compromise the woke church uh white White fragility Fragility. um we got a couple others that we could do yeah i i we may or may not do them all because at some point they just get repetitive or we'll do ultra short reviews and say if you want a bigger understand that go back to some of these others so we do uh, want to deal with this whole issue of the social justice, uh, critical race theory, being woke. Um, and, and we understand that we're one voice among many who have already weighed in on these books, but we hope that, that in some way it will be helpful. And so we jokingly said that we read these books so that you did not have to. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, it was not pleasant. Um, but also so that if you choose to read them, we hope that you'll be able to pick up on some of the dangerous ideas that are pushed in their pages. And there, there's a reason why we say that. Uh, we have learned that people don't know how to read a book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're they they they're reading, but they're passive in the reading. And so they get carried along by the argument. Um, Uh, reading a book is actually a real skill, but it's one that people today don't usually develop. Um, This is very true today, where the advent of the internet, right? They make articles shorter and shorter and shorter. In fact, most of the articles I see on Facebook, they're posted. When I click on it, it says two minute read, now, if it's Grayson Gilbert with the course of the chaos, it'll probably say seventeen hours and three minutes, <laughs> and that's his introduction to the subject. Uh, Grayson is one of our church members, and he's a church planter with us. Yeah. We love the guy. Um, and if you're not part of the course in the chaos, uh, you should connect to that. Tune in. And yeah, that that's good a good 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 place to go. Um, By the way, just
0: a quick note. Um, sounds silly, but there is a book called How to Read a Book. Yeah. By Mortimer Adler, written in, I think, the 30s. It's a classic, but it's sound and it's thick.
1: I got it. I haven't read it yet. (laughs) Okay.
0: uh, But what it does is it reveals, and he argues that most people don't know how to read, as you're saying, actively or critically or analytically, it's just sort of passively. And so he gives a lot of really good tips on how to
1: engage thoughtfully and critically with the book as you read. Yeah, and his point would be ours. Gone are the days where people will settle down and actually read a weighty tome on some subject and then discuss it in detail with friends, right? Instead, you want quick answers, um, and you don't want to really even think through what are the questions first. Uh, So you Google something, and then you expect from that that you'll get the basic information that you need um, and we also foolishly like to assume that Google is yeah. um, passive it's not actively directing you to certain resources and act- actively hiding other resources even though it's proven that they do that yeah we, we might be in an information age but we're not in a thinking age and and we're certainly not in the truth age yep um, we live it. for instead now by a world of memes that may or may not give accurate information, but anything beyond a meme is likely for too many Christians to be ignored. And we saw that firsthand in our episode uh, on the Kenosha rights and the BLM. If you remember, that's the one where we jokingly or tongue in cheek, we started talking about how we're pro Planned Parenthood. Man, we got people, when they saw, heard that or saw that in the show notes, they just stopped. And I have nothing to do with people who would be pro pan plan, plan parenthood. How can we take these people seriously? And it's like, you only had to go another three to four minutes of listening and you would have seen our point. But Well, our inbox blew up. Oh, did it blow up? Yeah, that was a lot <laughs> of fun. Uh, I want to do some more like that. It was, I, I have this sick. How many times did you respond to people? Just keep listening. listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, we had a. Uh, we had a fairly influential person who said, you know, you almost had me at first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but to his credit, was that Tom Askell? Uh, he, he reshared it, yeah. yeah. So did uh, Daryl Har- Harrison. Yeah, but now we need to get like Harrison and uh, Walker and we need to become number three. of the podcast. We want that to go further and further down. Anyhow, um, when you're actually reading, when you're reading something, that's a real book, um, you should have a pencil or paper and paper in hand. We really like people who make notes in their books. Um, It also requires you to learn the skill of reading backwards to make sure you're following that flow of the argument. It means you need to discern the thesis and the premise of a book and then be able to know if you're in agreement with it or sympathetic to it or predisposed to be against it. Because once you understand the thesis, that's the foundation. That's where he's coming from. That's what he's going to argue for. And if that's false, it doesn't matter how much good stuff he gives in there. It's wrong. Right. I mean, it's just, it's still wrong. So, a guy who's going to argue for the non-historicity of Genesis in his commentary, that's what he's going to do. He doesn't believe that it's historical, uh, it's it's myth, legend, whatever you want to say, it is. Already you know you're not going to be agree. He might have some helpful little things commentary-wise that he observes from the text, but it's never coming from the assumption that Genesis is actual history. So. Right. It's a house of cards. Right. Right. So once you know that, you can read more carefully. Um, If you read, you have to be uh, neutral to an extent. In other words, you do want to give, especially if... This is a good point. Go ahead. Okay. Well, you have to give the author a fair hearing. But you also have to be able to separate your emotions from your thinking. Uh, Something that moves you emotionally does not mean... It's good, bad, or anything else. And yet we we find frequently in our talks with people that they're thinking emotionally rather than, mm-hmm. yeah, but that's not what the scripture says. Um, So with that as our introductory thoughts, we we want to spend a little bit of time talking about what we thought of Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Now, this is merely for the podcast. What we actually will publish in our show notes is a much more extensive written review, and and that's what you can look at if you want to read that. Uh, But that's much more information than what you're going to get here. Um, There was no way we would... subject you to everything that got written down. So if you want to know more, read the show notes, but this one will give you the essence of where we're at. Yeah. And this is I think the first one we read, right? Yeah. We we got this on pre-order. In fact, we actually were at that point we didn't know anything about him and that it might be useful. And we thought maybe we could have him on as a guest. Yeah. Now we know that he wants you to give him money if you you ask him to be on the guest and we're not paying him a dime. Nope. So who is he? Who is Jamar
0: Tisby? Uh, well, he is a graduate of Notre Dame with an MDiv, Master of Divinity at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, which is a decent school. I mean, I disagree with much, um, but it's conservative at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he is uh, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi.
1: So he's not Dr. Tisby yet? Not yet. No. See, I thought he had his until we researched
0: yeah um he's uh, he's a seemingly bright guy uh who's focused on racial justice on religion and how the church as a whole must come to grips with their collective guilt in america um
1: he he was raised in the chicago area yeah northern part so like i don't know if it was waukegan or very close to us yeah but very close to us because we're we're actually in in a vague way Kenosha is now considered a suburb, a northern suburb of Chicago. A lot of Chicago transplants just coming barely over the border to avoid the taxation. Yep.
0: And uh, in fact, the other day when I was going up 52nd here, which is the main outlet to the interstate, Lydia and I were counting Illinois plates. Yeah. And I think close to half
1: were Illinois Well, that's why it's shut down right now. But. Yeah. And that's why we have a White Castle right there at Highway 50 and in the interstate because. All these Chicago people want to eat those sliders, which are disgusting. Yeah, pretty vile.
0: So he was raised in Chicago. Currently <laughs> finishing up a second book. Uh, also serves uh, serves as president of an organization called The Witness, where they engage on uh, quote issues of religion, race, justice, and culture from a biblical perspective. Um, end quote. And you can get a link to his uh, site in the show notes. So that's kind of who he is. Well, what about the book, The Color of Compromise? Um, (laughs) uh, Let me just put it this way. We didn't like it, uh, but as you said, we hoped we would. We weren't coming from the perspective of let's deconstruct this thing. We're coming from the perspective of you and I read it separate, and we wrote in all of our margins and stuff, and then we came together and we literally walked through that whole book. I remember that day together just kind of comparing certain things because, again, we were approaching it as, hey, maybe there's something helpful here.
1: We wanted to understand it. It's like it's exploding everywhere. We didn't want to have a knee-jerk reaction. We hate people that do it to us, so we didn't want to do it to them. Uh, But time has passed since then, and all kinds of things have been said. I, I used to follow him on Twitter for one week, and then he blocked me. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't you follow him anymore? Yeah. <laughs> but I am a surreptitious follower of him on Facebook, and I refuse to comment anymore on his post because he'll block me from that too. Well, uh, yeah. So <laughs> let's just put it up front. We didn't like
0: the book, and we'll talk about why. Um, so we want to be upfront about that. We're not going to try and do a review where we pretend that there was – you know, great material in this and that there are a few points that we can just quibble over. Uh, It it isn't that the book is vile or evil, uh, nor are we even going to argue that it is in some way anti-Christian, you know, overtly. right, right. But we do not see that in the end, it actually helps us understand the issues of race in a way that moves us forward into a more biblical worldview, which is what we're looking for.
1: We wanted a biblical worldview on race, injustice, and we didn't get it.
0: Yeah, and that is that point is key for us. We, what, what we are seeing in the whole current race-charged atmosphere that our country finds itself in is coming from an unbiblical worldview. Um, and sadly, too many in the church at large are promoting these views rather than bringing the Christian into a very different position that's founded upon rich, sound theology. Um, and so for many speakers, many writers, and pastors in the church, you could remove all the you know, quote religious terminology that their message um, is, and it's still the same. I mean, if you if you if you remove the terms, the Bible verses, and stuff right out of the writings, it stays the exact same. Yeah, doesn't because, change it
1: because that's not the foundation from which they're writing.
0: Right, and it, what they're doing is what we talk about is how they're taking that message or ideology, and they're trying to back press it into yeah. the scriptures. Yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, and and so why why is that the case? Well, because the beginning point for much of this was social justice or critical race theory, or even KKK, whatever you wish. White
1: supremacy. Yeah,
0: um, they're, they're not starting with just simply, thus saith the Lord. What does the word of God say? What has he spoken definitively? So the result is that they first receive the ideology from this fallen age, and then again, back it into the Bible. Um, so how does this look? Well, they make a sweeping statement that God opposes slavery. Um, just categorically. Um, now, they, they can't make it from the Bible, but they try. Uh, even if they try to make it from the way slavery was done in Israel, it does not, which wasn't like chattel slavery. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, a more indentured type of slavery, I guess. Um, even if they try to make it the way that slavery was done in Israel, it doesn't remove the fact that the Greek and the Roman systems of slavery were chattel forms of slavery, they, I, it's they, like, meaning
1: property. How do you forget the entire New Testament was written in the uh, context of the Greek and Roman cultures, And but they do. Yeah,
0: they do. And, and the point we're making over and over again is that the New Testament never tells masters to free those slaves that they bought. That's a very tough pill to swallow, but, but think about it. Where in the New Testament do you see that happening in a chattel system? Um, another way is taking the word justice. In the Bible, and then loading it with meaning that is not found in the term, biblically speaking, um, but magically it becomes social justice like they learned in their public school systems or their university, um, and they just changed the term, they change the definition, yeah. and you can do the same with you know with immigration, poverty, whatever topic you'd like. So, so when we bought this book, we hoped it might help us understand things better um, <laughs> because you know we're seeing all this and we do want understanding, but really it just served. To use your word, to annoy us, and as we saw it flowing, you know,
1: it was just flowing from from a worldview that we cannot accept. Yeah, we would uh, get together and be grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was just frustrating reading. Yeah, it so. was. It All was. right. So the argument that he makes, though, so it's it is rather simple. On page fifteen, he says that the book is quote, it is about revealing racism. All right. Specifically, he seeks to pull back that curtain of how American Christians have collaborated with racism for centuries. So by American Christians, what he means actually is white Christians, and that's very, very important Mm -hmm. for us to remember. And so right away, we begin our departure from Mr. Tisby, and it's important to know this up front as it will color, and there's no pun intended, um, our responses Tisby makes that error of equating equating the visible external church in America with Christians in general, and you shouldn't. Um, If he were to have written the American church, we'd be more prone to have agreement. But when he makes it Christians, he steps from the whole to the individual, and this cannot stand under any level of scrutiny. Simply put, many Christians did oppose the form of slavery practiced in America, and they continue like we would. To oppose that form of racism today. We, we would oppose any form. Um, but this book will not even give true acknowledgement of that fact and instead chooses to make sweeping statements that bring little uh, light to a very heated topic. Now, Tisby is helpful in that he does define what he means by racism on page 16. Uh, he references a book by Beverly Tatum, and he writes that it is, quote, a system of oppression based on race. So now we're beginning to see how the book's going to flow. It's not personal bigotry that is the issue as much as systems that are in place that are racist as well. That's huge, guys. If you can get that, then you'll understand. He doesn't mean racism like Matt and I would use it or how even the normal dictionary meaning, which is now currently being updated.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, is, that's going away.
1: Uh, it no longer is that I personally have an animosity toward another race or color. Um, of skin pigmentation it's not an individual it's it categories yeah it's now in the world of systems Um, and by making the definition this way his task becomes easy for him to argue because he no longer is he having to show intent by people now all he has to imply is that some system is present to bring down oppression upon some sort of, uh, of of race like the blacks and that that is in itself racist by nature So then he goes on in page 19, he defends a value of writing this book as an attempt to, quote unquote, build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth in love. Now, I've read the book three times, and I'm I'm still left with this sincere question of how much truth was spoken, and second, how it builds up the church uh, and was loving in it. We're not whining here. We're just left asking, when does he ever get around to doing that? And yeah. I, I never saw it. Um, it's this is made clear actually in just two paragraphs later when he sweepingly applauds the black church. He says that it was a bulwark against bigotry. He even calls it an ark of safety. He invokes liberation theology termina- uh, terminology by equating it with the liberation of Israel from Egypt, and that the bla- that the blacks are the most religious demographic in the country. Not, notice, not Christian, but religious. And it's like, fine, uh, whatever. If he, one wanted to be a bit snide, you could actually argue that he's being a bit Afrocentric in his assertions. He is right, though, when he says on page 20 that black Christians had played a vital role in shaping the history of America and that they have much to share with the church. But what follows on the pages is, is not a positive declaration of that claim, but rather it's an attempt to take away any positive role that the white church has offered to the universal church. We we really struggle to find a positive yeah. declaration that well, the white church has done anything of value, and it's like, none?
0: Well, even there, his, his assumption is, I, w- I would disagree, because he says, in that same line there, he says that— something along the lines of how the the church was, the the black church was forged in oppression. Yeah. Um, And therefore now has a voice. Well, again, we have different springboards. I don't, I mean, that may be the case, but I'm looking for, was it born from the scripture or is it born from your experience? And so now we're dealing with experiential theology,
1: not biblical theology. So much of what flows out of that is unhelpful. Yeah. Now it would have been wonderful to read page after page of contributions that were positive by the blacks in the american church but we found none um this is not the only time this occurs we are finding it in other books we're reading and reviewing as well i i know i have a note in the woke church with mason where he he wants he, he's like you should we should be listening to these great voices from the past who have contributed but they happen to be blacks, and, but he never once references one of them. I'm like, give me some of these guys. I'd love to read them. Um, and so we're going to make this simple request. If any of you know of some people, we'd love to read them. Uh, will someone, and, and if not, will someone out there write a book that chronicles godly, theologically sound, black theologians and pastors? Just write. We want to know about them. And if that book exists, then just simply tell us, and we will buy it, we will read it, and we will hopefully profit from it. Yeah. Uh, I hope they understand that what we're trying to say is it's one thing to say, yeah, you, know, you guys ignore the black church. Well point us to the positive things. Maybe we are ignorant. We'll freely admit that. We want to learn. But when you tell us to go read W.E.B. Du Bois, who's an atheist, DuBois. or yeah, Du Bois, Du Bois. yeah W.B. Well. Du Bois. Oh, okay, well, I thought it was French, so Dubois. What do I know? Or or Martin Luther King Jr. It's like, stop. Yeah, but or, or James Coleman. I'm ahead
0: of myself. Um, so on pages 20 through 21, he then does an incredibly bad thing by anticipating <laughs> why, and this is interesting, a bad thing by anticipating why some may find the book to be hard to read. And, and he's simply brushing aside arguments as evidence of racism, um, rather than anticipating them and giving a sound biblical response to them. So, so he, he, he sort of glibly acknowledges that some will see liberalism or Marxist ideology as the driving forces of his, of his book or that the book is really simply making a claim of being a victim or that the points made do not represent the real church. So, so he acknowledges this in his first pages. Um, but mind you, he never once really deals with those claims. And he just knows that they're coming, and so he brushes them aside as being false. Um, The problem, though, is that he is arguing um, for most, if not all, of these points. I mean, it's exactly what he's doing. Um, So he he favorably quotes liberals and and Marxist individuals, and then he brushes over the violence and the evil of, of blacks while focusing on the violence and the evil of whites. And his solutions are by and large, the platform of liberal politics rather than biblical standards. So the reader who might approach this book with a bit of skepticism is already put on the defense to try and now prove a negative. Um, And we're just, we're not going to play that game.
1: No, we were unimpressed with that. We laughed when we both
0: saw that. As if somehow acknowledging what the reader knows is going
1: to come nullifies the invalidity of him using these approaches. So it's also somewhat humorous how highly he views his own book. Um, This should be in the foreword by somebody else, what he writes. Uh, He equates his book as being like having a sobering talk with your doctor about a serious disease and how radical surgery is the only option. And so Matt and I laughed at that, for his points are not new, really. Uh, Rather, they're a rehashing of historical realities while artificially sewing together quotes and events to create this patchwork quilt, if you will, that claims to be a blanket of truth cut from one single cloth, but it's not. So on page 24, he says, The progress is possible, but we must learn to discern the difference between complicit Christianity and courageous Christianity. Christianity has run aground on the rocks of racism and threatens to capsize. It has lost it's integrity. So now you know how he looks. He looks at the American church and he's like, it has no integrity. Um, It's complicit. It's not courageous. And courageous is only going to be, you're only a courageous Christian if you buy into his arguments. Yeah. Um, And It's it's very similar to what you've seen happening in the secular
0: world right now, where we need to get rid of the system because it's untrustworthy and we need to not, and And now establish a new system. Well, in a similar way, he's saying, look at the church or Christianity as we know it is untrustworthy. It lacks integrity. So we need to capsize it because it's being capsized on its own
1: and we need to start with something new. Sure. So courageous Christianity is defined as embracing racial and ethnic diversity. So there is hope for the church, but only if it jumps on board with him and his assertions. Anything else in his mind is a complicit and untrustworthy entity. Very important for you to know. So from this opening chapter, he then
0: gives, uh, he begins to take us on a broad sweep of American history. And in many ways, he does a decent job. He was necessarily broad and he knows it. In all honesty, we we would have liked him to be a bit more detailed in this section. You know, maybe another 100 pages of well-documented occurrences would have been helpful. Uh, we learned of a few events that we did not know, and they were painful to read. Um, it is here that we'll, we'll skip a lot of points um, we make in the the written review. So again, go back and read that written review if you want a fuller version. Uh, though he makes valid points the way he does, it often detracts rather than bolsters his points. Here's an example. He gives a head nod to the missionary effort in Africa by, right, well. by Europeans and Americans on page pages 37 through 38. But he wants us to remember that the gospel had come to the continent a long time prior, which is true. Yeah, Ethiopia. Right. Um, but he, he fails to admit that for the most part, the church in Africa has failed in its evangelistic efforts. Um, he even seems to give some level of approval of the influence of Islam and tribal religions as something that should not be disregarded, which we would say that, A statement like that, that's puzzling at best, but vile at worst.
1: But then he says- And and let me jump in there, because I've I've been into many nations of Africa, and the African tribal religions are a constant assault in the local churches. It's not uncommon for you, like in Cameroon, um, to watch people come to a church service and listen to a a solid sermon um, by a faithful pastor, Then they will get up and they will go down the road to visit the local witch doctor, um, who's now called a um, traditional medicine doctor, but he's a witch doctor. And they'll have him cast his spells and do his little juju, literally, it's called juju, um, to deal with issues that are going on in their home, of the ancestral spirits that are uh, assaulting them. It's it's freaky how they're intertwined, and they— that, that ends up just completely destroying uh, the message and the reality of the Christian uh, faith. Yeah. Uh, so for him to, I, I was personally just shocked when he's, he, he's like, you're speaking as if that's good when right. no, it's, it's bad. Anyhow, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, it, he then says something key. He says that the failure of the missionary effort stems from the, quote, truncated, <laughs> And can hear this, truncated, gospel message by failing to confront slavery, Um, end that quote. This is reading a current perspective backward onto history, and it shows how slavery in his thinking somehow is part of the gospel message. Um, And it isn't. It isn't. Again, we'll point you to, well, if it were, then the New Testament would not be telling slaves to submit to their masters and for masters to treat their slaves in a certain manner. But it is setting up the reader to think that slavery is to use a um, the gospel, gospel coalition yeah. term. Um, th- they're making it sound like it's a quote gospel issue. Uh, and it's just not. Um, at the same time on pages 53 through 54, he recounts a, a shameful event where two black pastors are treated with deep disrespect by white church uh, trustees. Um, and you said to you as you were
1: reading this that you actually physically winced oh, at that story. Man. That's the one where these guys, this, these two pastors, respectable men, were seated on a pew that belonged to a white guy. And so they insisted that they get up and leave and move. And they're like, let us finish praying first. That's, th- They respectfully requested and they were forcibly removed. And I'm like, that's shameful. I just, that just broke my heart. Um, mm-hmm. <sighs> Yeah. That there's no, no way you can say that was good and you can say that, but that was in a system of ra- racism. That was racism. That was right. evil. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. He, he then gets into the civil war, but the way he treats it is very simplistic And that also is very unfortunate Uh, there's just too much data that's easily accessible to anyone today that unravels the events that led up to that horror of a war Uh, on page 71 though he says the war was about slavery and that many christians valued slavery so much that they were willing to die over unfortunately that's not what the war was over Um, although slavery had a part in that process that was not the driving point But it does reflect either his unwillingness to do the work of a historian, which he claims to be, or it's merely reflecting his own prejudices that are apparent throughout the book. So then we move into chapter 6. He deals with the Reconstruction and the uh, Jim Crow era. This was overall actually a decent chapter, but like everything before it, there are these revealing gaps and the reality of seeking to place guilt upon the white church as a whole for what was happening in the nation. Now, it's worth saying here that we would not try to argue that all white churches and members are free from participating in the evil of this time period. We can't, uh, but it's far too much to simply brush guilt upon them all as if that were true as well. What we would say about this time period is how it actually reveals that though laws can be enacted and even wars be fought, but none of them can change a heart. That's the problem. After the war and, and the slaves were freed, the heart change in many people never occurred because you can't do that through... Law change, or system change, if you will. And yet, what's, what's his answer that we'll get to in a short bit? It's change the system. It's like, it can't do it. You're, you're looking at a worldly method to change what is a spiritual problem. And so he has a way of making the history paint a picture where the church as a whole is actively involved in all these efforts to oppress. And he gives examples in the white community and how they twist scripture to support slavery and oppression. He ignores those same grievous acts within the black community that were occurring too. And so we would simply ask so, from where do these attitudes actually flow? Are they flowing from a system? And we'd say no. It's flowing from unregenerate hearts at worst and faulty biblical knowledge at the very best. It's without acknowledging these things that he then points how the KKK grew and flourished and happily used scripture to justify script, a twisted thinking. Now that can play to his own crowd and to those who are non-Christian, but it is very unconvincing to many who are in Christ and who would have no more who would no more affirm the KKK than they would the local satanists. I mean, it's it, yeah, it, a good point. It just it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So then moving on ahead on page one twenty-three, he states. Uh, racial discrimination did not end after World War II. Um, And he's right on that. I mean, obviously it didn't. Um, But the question we would ask is, did it not improve? Um, In in reality, it did for many and as a people group, but there's no acknowledgement of that. And so we would say it weakens his argument.
1: Uh, Yeah, it would have been nice if he could have just said, things got better. It's still not where it ought to be. We'd agree with that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, you know, but it, it's as if the only thing that will placate him is if today, and immediately, all things he decries both legally, culturally, economically, educationally, politically, corporately, and individually are rejected in mass. Then he will not allow him spe- himself to speak well or with hope. Um, and in fact, later in, in the book, this is essentially... What he does. Um, so let us let us just give a side point that's built into his book. Um, by quoting favorably men like W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr., he doesn't advance his argument very well. Many may disagree with us here on this, uh, and we understand that. I mean, big Eva again, right? They're, they're in love with yeah, MLK, MLK right now. Um, but we stand by this. Um, du Bois was an avowed atheist. MLK was part of the clergy, but there is absolutely no evidence that he was actually a Christian. His theology, born out of his own writings,
1: showed that to be abundantly clear. In fact, I long to read quotes from godly pastors who love Christ and love his word. So I wanna read these quotes from black pastors who love Jesus Christ, love God, love theology. Um, I wanna read words where they hold the power of the gospel in their lips and that they're the ones white Christians ought to be listening to and reading. But instead, what he gave us, you said it's Du Bois mm-hmm. uh, or MLK without any acknowledgement that they were no more part of the genuine church in America than many of the whites that he's been taking uh, pains to reveal in the book. It, it was really frustrating. Yeah, so here, here's a sample quote from page 143 that illustrates this.
0: He's, he's quoting King here. He says, social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. There is no other answer. Bam. Um, That's just false, right? And that reveals how King really does not understand what the gospel, the true gospel, not the liberation gospel, but the true gospel accomplishes. It is the gospel that works the change that then brings about social change. He, He devotes a substantial amount of time on King and at no point gives an honest assessment of the man's life or his theology he, he is right that King has become the quotable King uh, on page 148. Um, and it's our desire that one day Christians will no longer go to this man, meaning MLK for their quotes, but that they'll go to true men of God. So write that book. Yes. The book of
1: black theologians that we should hear.
0: Mm-hmm. Again, where are the godly pastors in the black community of the 60s who wrote biblically solid material to instruct the heart
1: and the hearts of their white people? brothers and sisters. All right. So then on page 157, he brings up another thread of thought that occurs throughout the book that within the black community, uprisings or revolts would take place. Um, It's interesting to note that each time he does it, he does not condemn it in any way, uh, the revolt, even though often it involved murder, rape, theft, arson, and things like that. Uh, Very similar to what we're seeing today. We just had the riots roll through our city. And where's the voices? Mm -hmm. The church was amazingly silent in Kenosha. The same ones going for justice for George Floyd also got really quiet as they watched their own downtown and uptown burn to the ground. Uh, There's just no speaking out against these things. Um, Instead, we're to condemn white violence against black, but the book really just shrugs at black violence against white. And so our response would be that instead of calling it an uprising, let's just call it law-breaking. It's not merely destruction of property, but it's evil violence. And until professing Christians all define these sorts of actions as what they are, there never will be any progress. Evil is always evil, beloved, no matter who does it. And to call evil good is to simply arrange yourself against God himself and this is what we saw again in the rights here in Kenosha people profess Christ who will not call what happened evil and when this happens frankly honest dialogue can't occur if christians are going to be for justice and righteousness then they should be for justice all the way around and on every single side but if you swing the pendulum too hard which is what has happened you just swing from one injustice on what from one injustice on one side of the issue to another type of injustice that happens beyond the other side. Yeah. So we would argue then that on page 160 is where we
0: begin to see Tisby's real problem. Uh, so he writes this, here's a quote, should this be taken to mean that, there, that the more than eight out of 10 evangelical voters who pulled the lever for Nixon were racist, is it possible that white evangelicals were not concerned with matters of race when they voted, but even a colorblind ideology is problematic since it depended upon the establishment of structural mechanisms of inclusion. No, exclusion. Sorry, exclusion that did not require individual racism by suburban beneficiaries. Since the late 1960s, the American church's complicity in racism has been less obvious, but it has not required as much effort to maintain. Nowadays, all the American church needs to do in terms of compromise is corporate with already, cooperate with already established racially unequal social systems
1: that's a mouthful but i hope they got it yeah
0: so well in other words overt individual racism is out uh that's not the issue uh rather sneaky systemic racism is in that's the issue and that brings us to the mess that our nation is currently in we are a people running around trying to root out a shadow and we can't seem to define or describe that shadow monster um but we are told it's there and that it's bad and if you deny it or resist the label being put on you then it merely proves you are a racist um that's white fragility right yeah and it's also kafka trapping you know you are racist and if you deny you're racist it's evidence of your racism all right um (laughs) well if you and if you doubt us consider this um here's an example of how how hopeless it is if we allow this this new idea of systemic or sneaky racism to be the standard. On page 164 through 165, he mentions Bob Jones University and its racist leanings. And he's right on that. He is correct. They did have many things wrong. But then we read on page 165 that the new leader of the university published an admission of guilt regarding racism in the school and repented of it. So does Tisby rejoice and tell his readers that this is good news and that we need to see more of this? No, he doesn't do that at all, not in the slightest. Here's what he writes. He says, yet, quote, yet the damage has been done. Bob Jones University has intentionally indoctrinated generations of students with racist ideas about interracial relationships. Um, so the, the white church is called to repent, but that repentance evidently will never be accepted. And many in the church today think that this is biblical and that this is good, but the reality is that it is
1: evil and it is very anti-gospel absolutely so now we're in chapter 10 he finally gets to the point of black lives matter and the die by this time is already set in his methodology here uh, he asserts that because obama was now president that this stimulated racist backlash in some quarters mind you he doesn't share what quarters those are but he is sure that they were there and caused by the presence of a black president then he mentions the death of unarmed black women and men at the hands of police officers. Now, again, this is disingenuous and damaging as it plays quite loosely with truth. There's so much not said, and by doing so, it paints this picture he desires, but it's not one that's borne out by facts. So he brings up Travon Martin who is described, just hear how he describes him. He's described as a 17-year-old high school student who is just walking home eating Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I didn't know that. Um, huh. Uh, I don't know how uh, we would want him dead. Um, no, we don't want him dead. Um, now, in what, what would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic, he then writes this, quote, Somehow Zimmerman, somehow, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Inexplicably. Yes, somehow Zimmerman and Martin got into a physical altercation. And then he concludes in quote, in the span of a few minutes, an innocuous walk in the local to the local convenience store for snacks had resulted in homicide. I'm like, what? And it's here that we find ourselves today. Truth and facts simply aren't important. He moves to Mike Brown then. Again, he paints the situation in the most sympathetic light, and again he ignores factual evidence, and poor Michael Brown, that gentle giant, is somehow gunned down by this vile white officer. Instead of bringing light to the subject, Tisby instead perpetuates the lies of hands up, don't shoot. He complains that the body lay in the street for hours after the shooting, but he ignores The well-known fact that homicide investigations require that the body be left so that they can gather every bit of information. If you remove the body too soon, you might spoil the crime scene. And because we're pursuing justice in investigating the the shooting, we need to leave that body there. But somehow that's evidence of racism. Now so now we have the author of a book charging all white Christians with complicity that with complicity in racism who is now simply repeating narratives that have been completely debunked but somehow we're supposed to trust him. Yeah, he's on message. So one more thing before we consider his
0: solutions on page 181 he then writes this quote the longer arc of American history reveals that Christian complicity with racism does not always require specific acts of bigotry. Being complicit only requires a muted response in the face of injustice or uncritical support of the status quo. Um, And as he has shown throughout the book, the sin of the white Christian is somehow not in specific acts but because they live and allow a system to exist
1: that Tisby says is inherently racist. I think it was you that told me that there's a, a phrase that gets said all the time. If, if we remain silent. Yeah, well,
0: silence is violence.
1: violence. Yeah, there, yeah. They're, yeah. And, and think of how many Christians that we've heard say things like that, that we have to go out and march, we have to protest, we have to raise our voices. And, and it's like, for what though? Because what happened was not racist. It was good police work. You know?
0: Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean. Sorry, I, I got okay. you off. So that, even though in, inadvertently he has shown that the nation has improved racial issues consistently throughout the, uh, this, this short history that we've had. But again, that that doesn't matter to him. He's got the narrative. And so unless you speak up in line with his narrative, you're complicit in what he is calling racism. Yeah. So his solutions then we see chapter 11, and before he gets into them in any way, he sets the stage by essentially poisoning the well. He writes on page 193 this, quote, Many of the solutions proposed, solutions that might actually prove effective in changing the status quo, are often dismissed as impractical. Um, in other words, he's saying, I got the solutions, but you're not going to like them, so they're not going to be accepted. Um, so from from here, he then gives his thoughts, and and they're not all bad. No, um, but he wants people to continue to grow in an awareness, and and we would say, great, that you know that's good. Uh, he wants us to ex- expand our places we hang out to experience different cultures. He wants us to try new activities that might bring us into contact with different ethnicities. Um, all these are fine, but the reality
1: is that they're done in almost every major city where many cultures interact. I mean, yeah, in Chicago, there's this constant interaction with the various communities. You can't help it. It's, it's such a melting pot. Yeah. But, but what do you do in rural Montana
0: (laughs) in a town of 1500 people where there might not even be a black
1: person present? Um, So, yeah, you know what I used to live in Nampa, Idaho, which is just outside of Boise and 35,000, there was one black in our, school he was a a friend of mine he actually wasn't black per se he was hawaiian but he looked black so he was also an actor and i was in drama and so anytime there's a black role he was always the guy because it's like man he actually was a good actor um so that helped but it's like he's guaranteed a key part um when we did to kill a mockingbird or something but i mean one black guy now if you want to talk hispanic culture we had a lot of hispanics because we're a farming community but Yeah. One black. Well, and I would just add, you know, some people might take
0: exception to this because they'll say, well, look at the fact that there is, you know, these rural towns with only 1,500 people and they're all white people. That shows the segregation. I'd just say, or it's evidence that only 12% of the population is black. Yeah. So I don't know how you're supposed to disperse that.
1: Well, and, and the black population, because of our slave history, it was on the eastern side of the United States. Montana came about a long time later, and it was through- Um, through the white progression westward that a lot of these people uh, and states got founded versus the black. So it's like, I don't know how to fix that unless we dial back history and we can't. So, but so anyhow, um, he then begins to shift things. So, so on page 197, he begins to list various ways the Christian can become an advocate for social justice. And this is where we start going away. Uh, and here, the reality that social justice is actually not a neutral concept, but an entire economic and political worldview is conveniently, frankly, left out. However, it is when he moves into reparations on page 197 that things go real sideways quickly. He writes, the idea goes against politically conservative ideas of small government and low taxes. Now, that's laughably bad. <laughs> In that it is it is him assuming he understands why so many oppose reparations. We're not opposed to reparations for those reasons, we're against them because they actually assume guilt upon those who are not guilty of slavery and theft. In fact, my family uh, did not come into America until the late 1800s, and they came to Montana. That's where they settled, um, and they lived in a one-room tar paper shack, and they were very poor. No slaves were owned. No racism was protected. Just poor white immigrants working very, very hard to make their way in a new land. But Tisby and many others will make us guilty and responsible simply because we're white and therefore we're complicit on a systemic level. And so he makes the unsubstantiated argument in one, on page 198 that reparations is not a matter of vengeance or charity, it is a matter of justice. And here is why his earlier argument that Christians should support social justice at every opportunity becomes problematic. He actually goes on to reference uh, a couple passages, Numbers five seven and Luke nineteen eight as examples. Now, mind you, this is not those passages does not have people centuries later repaying perceived wrongs back to others who actually were never harmed by those perceived wrongs of bygone centuries. Instead, these were actually the guilty actors repaying back to the actual victims. So, the Luke nineteen eight that's where he repay uh, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus right? 40, yeah. Um, and reparations is saying well just like Zacchaeus did so all of the whites and America ought to repay back to all of the blacks for things that were done centuries before and it's like you that's not a biblical idea it's, at it's, all it's
0: Zacchaeus paying back those whom he personally right. committed injustices right. against right. yeah so in conclusion though you know, this this book has some highlights that are good and, and right. The overall thrust is one in which the standards of racism and repentance are constantly changed. Uh, it's sort of like being told by your mom that you can go and play after you clean up your room. Uh, but then once you finish, she now gives you a new chore to do, and then promises that you can go and play after that is finished, well, five chores later, you can get the sense that you're never going to be free to play. <laughs> that's sort of like what this is like, and, and, and so it is with this new iteration of racial reconciliation proposed by by so many, um, accept that you're a racist simply because you're white, and if you deny it, all you do is prove that you're a racist. Um, repent of it, and all that will happen is you'll be told that you have not repented enough, and that's what we're seeing only full and total unquestioning capitulation is what will be acceptable. Um, and why, and I would argue this, is because the real power, or the real issue is power. Um, and, and, and the other books that we may review here will show that to be, I think, the undeniable reality. This yeah, is, is an issue of power shift. So so that's our review. Uh, we hope it has been of some help. Again, there's there's many good critical reviews out there that you can find, but these are our thoughts. Um, and next time we'll cover something else, but until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the color of compromise. If you read it, please give us a five-star rating and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to like, share, comment, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend.